Hello, and welcome to Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. By writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Brent. I'm LP. And I'm Will. And with us again this week is the awesome Piper J. Drake back again, but this time we get to talk about her amazing new book, Wings Once Cursed and Bound. Welcome back to the show, Piper. Thank you. And we- <laughs> I'm well, so excited. We're excited as well. Um, congratulations. We're stoked. Let's uh, let's just get to it. Will? Okay. You, 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 I know that there are questions. I'm, I'm like holding a stuffed animal in in comfort here because they're going to well, be hard. You're going to make me think, aren't you? I'll, I'll be honest with you. The first question um, may sound like a surprise, but it shouldn't be. Okay. Yeah. Go. I'd like you to describe in three words that can be completely unrelated of writing this book. <laughs> Oh, I should have seen this coming. Um, (laughs) Everybody should see it coming, but for some reason, nobody does. It's hilarious. I love it. No, I'm like, dodge, dodge. No, three words. Um, Oh, childhood. Mm, Diaspora. And I don't know. We got a third word. For this book. What comes to your mind? What comes to mind when you think of it? The writing of the book. The writing of the book. The writing process of the the book. book itself. Anything. Yeah. Um, Childhood. Diaspora. Diaspora. Yeah. What else? And. um, Flying. You got this, Piper. And crying? Flying. 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 Yes. Okay. All right. So let's unpack them. You know? <laughs> uh, let's talk about childhood. Why childhood? All right. So a lot of the inspirations for the main character, Pirapan, uh, and being a Kinari is because as a kid, my mom used to tell me Thai folk, to- folk to- tales all the time. And also I studied a little bit of Thai traditional dance, not formally, but here and there uh, because I was – a dancer, traditionally Western trained. So from age three to age 28, I used to dance with um, a dance company. Like I used to go to classes and then when I got an old enough, old enough, I um, danced with the dance company in ballet, like Western ballet, jazz, hip hop, uh, lyrical. Right. So had a lot of dance training. And so of course I was interested in Thai traditional dance here and there when the opportunity arose to learn about it, not formally, but, you know, putting on um, exhibitions, for Thai dance in college and things like that. And the fun thing about a lot of Thai folklore is that it is also portrayed in Lohan, um, like Thai traditional dance. And so one of my favorite, favorite mythologies or folk tales was Menorah, which is about a Thai bird princess. And, um, you know, the mythological beings called Kinari, right? Menorah herself is a Thai bird princess. And there's several different dances from her epic story that I learned to do. And so that was one of the first things that I thought about when I was like, okay, when I, when I think about this main character and what she is, I think about those childhood memories, right? And a couple of like random things like Piper mommy watching me practice 
in a Thai traditional uh, dance costume as a kinari. And even though the wings are from the hip on the actual kinari in the Thai traditional dance costume, they are attached to the arms. And I'd be like trying to be all graceful doing the dance. Mom's like, you don't look like a Thai bird princess. You look like a hovering turkey. You know, so some of that childhood memory stuff came back, which leads me into the second word, which is diaspora. And a lot of that has to do with the way that I was trained to dance in Western style and then trying to convert or, or pull into being able to do Thai traditional dance, which has a different step. It has a different posture about it, not in any way um, curved down or anything, but like the, 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 the where your balance is and how far apart you position your feet, the kinds of costume you're wearing, the way that you would tilt your head just so, or the way you would hold your arms, things like that are all different in Thai traditional dance than it would be for, let's say, like Western ballet. And especially um, the way that the tension and the positioning goes all the way down the arm into the fingertips um, was something. But also my mom would be like, whacking my bum because of like how my tailbone tailbone turned or like the way my, my hips turned out or didn't turn out. And the way that like, again, the whole, how far apart your stance is to ground yourself in balance when you're standing, right? Like, so being diaspora and growing up in the U S everything about how I moved through the world was pants oriented. (laughs) And a lot of the Thai traditional dance costumes are in very long ankle length, close fitting, close wrapped skirts. Except if you check history, they would do the wraps where they would bring it up through the legs so that you could move. But again, it wasn't so that you could be like pants. I'm going to stand with a broad stance and my, my legs out and I'm going to be running two steps at a time anywhere. I know you're still pretty close together. Likewise, when it comes to that traditional costuming, And the other thing about it was like when I would put on the Thai traditional dance costume, that stuff's only tied on. There's no zippers anywhere. And it's like a piece of fabric for wrapped around your waist. And there's a piece of fabric that goes around the top. And everyone, anyone who knows me in person physically knows I'm a 3D girl with some curvature. So when I would perform, we would tie me into the costumes the traditional way. And then my mom would like back it up with sewing with like, with like the kind of cotton twill um, twine that you would use to tie up a roast, like that thick, like holding things on. <laughs> so again, like that whole diaspora thing of like trying to figure out who this person is. And she is a dancer. Um, and how much she knows about who she is and thinking, okay, so she struggled a lot with that culture. She struggled a lot with who she is just human wise, right? But what happens if none of your family knows anything about being Kenari because it's been generations and, and everybody thought they didn't exist. So you just find yourself trying to teach yourself about who you are. And all you've got is a couple is like one legend and a couple of traditional dances that's all you got to figure out who and what you are. So that's why a lot of bouncing back and forth between like childhood memories and diaspora and not even the memories of being told the actual story, just the memories of trying to move. Yeah. <clears throat> and what about flying? Okay. So again, with that Turkey story, apparently yeah. I don't, I don't dance like a flying bird princess. I hover like a Turkey. So. 
Oh, I tried to slip that we're... joke into the book and it didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> so my next question is going to be tough. I want to just, I want to like throw that out there, Piper, because, you know, I've read a lot of your work and I feel like, and I said this in the other episodes that this feels like the most Piper story. Like, I feel like this is like the closest book that I've read of yours. And I think I've read almost all of your books, except for maybe two. Um, that you've written. And I want to ask you this, this question. God, do you want to say something before I ask? No, just hit me. In the last episode, you talked about balancing um, structure uh, with readers expectations that you have. And it really made me think of, do you feel like you have to placate white middle Western um, readers to get that balance and maybe why you haven't leaned into like your culture even more so, or do you feel like that was more of a, a publishing thing? Cause when I've read your book, when I've read this book, I was like, God, I, I feel like this is like your essence more than anything I've read. Or is it that, you know, you're, you're just getting better as a writer and you're getting more comfortable and you're like, okay, now I'm ready to tell this story. So I don't know if it's either one or the other perspective that you've proposed Mm -hmm. out there. I think that, um, first of all, you know, LP and I talked a lot in previous episodes about, you know, the choices and the strategies that a writer, a a person as a writer may or may not make to either appeal to um, a more mainstream, broader audience or to niche in to a specific audience um, that is looking for you know, specifically this flavor of writing. And I think that there's a place for both, right? Um, I don't think I've ever thought of it as placating uh, the cishet white crowd ever or the Midwest audience or readership. Uh, it's never about placating because that's that's an exercise in futility, right? If they're, mm-hmm. if they're not going to be satisfied or they're not going to like the taste, they're definitely not going to ever be satisfied. They're never going to like the taste. So... I'm not spreading my legs for them. Right. Like, so, Oh, I went there. My bad. Um, so <laughs> instead I think it's more along the lines of, um, different books having ranges of experience and how vulnerable I got while I was giving that range of experience to my characters. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so some of my early books, I got real, real vul- vulnerable in hunting cat, which is one of my earliest sci-fi romances. And so you got a lot of vulnerable emotion, and it got kind of whitewashed out in editing, but Caitlin is Asian diaspora. I just don't go into it deeply because this is space exploration, right? Like who knows what genetic stock she comes from, from Terra. She just was intended to be Asian diaspora, like, <clears throat> but like generations out in space kind of situation. So, um, you know, her, the emotions and stuff didn't necessarily have to do with cultural identity. I didn't put a lot of that in there, but I did make myself vulnerable from an emotional standpoint with Caitlin. And I think that came through really, really beautifully in hunting cat. But later when I switched over to romantic suspense, I think where you see my vulnerability and, and where it shines the most in the characters is in the dogs. 
(laughs) rather than the humans, because like, there's so much of my heart in the dogs and what I remember of my Kaiser and my Mozart, my dogs that were working dogs that, that I rescued and and lived out the rest of their twilight years with me um, came through in the way that I wrote the dogs in the true hero series. So the humans, maybe I didn't take the time to make myself as vulnerable when I was writing them and exploring their emotions and their identities. Right. And then you move on into the myth woven series and the fact that I was really, really exploring some stuff that I hadn't poked at before with Pirapun, right? With my childhood and some of those feelings that the vulnerability that I allowed to come through my character there is something new that you're experiencing with my writing. And yeah, I do also think that it is partially me being becoming better as a writer. And I also think that it cannot be ignored that I also was with an editor who got my book better than any other editor I've ever worked with. And so things don't get pulled out. I don't have to fight or stet or spend a lot of frustrating time compromising. Um, So that can't be ignored either is, is the fact that I was working with an editor who got my book and got the concept of my book and also shared a lot of understanding with me about where I come from when it comes to like, you know, she herself doesn't share a, a racial identity with me, but she she also is queer. She's also, oh, yeah, I think it's, I think that's okay to say. Um, and she's also like a gamer, like I am. She plays TTRPG like me. So she understood a lot of my love for like Shadowrun and World of Darkness and a lot of these worlds that are kind of urban fantasy or post-apocalyptic urban fantasy um, that have that edgy feel to them. And then she also knows how much I love a lot of urban fantasy books and writers like Ilona Andrews and like Patricia Briggs um, and like Laurel K. Hamilton. Right. So she got a lot of that and she got where a lot of things of those elements and nods came from in the book. So I think that you find that there's also that, that harmony between the author and the editor that you're finding in the book as well. Cause I, as an author didn't have to fight with my editor. Okay. So then um, I want to, I know Nick has questions about like the pitch because we still haven't given anyone the pitch or like what it's about, but I need to ask this question before I forget. With (laughs) that being said, you know, do you feel like you're ready to lean in even more after writing this book? Like, and I, I ask you this because, again, I've read a lot of your work, and I totally see, like, you know, you have different – in every book, we all have different parts of ourselves. But I really think that there is something um, magical in this book when it comes to you. And I don't know if it's because I know you a little bit, you know, like, outside of, like, your work. Like, I'm not just someone who's just read your work, but because, you know, like, we've talked, and we've talked about things and our experiences – after writing this book, did it make you feel more emboldened to like lean in and dig deeper? That's a good question because not every character intended for the books in Myth Woven are always going to be um, Thai American or Thai diaspora, right? Uh, and also, my intent for Myth Woven isn't necessarily for each book to follow Pirapan and Bennett. You now we're we're going to follow a little bit more of a, the, the tendency that you see more often in paranormal romance, where each book is going to zero in on a different set of characters from the Dark Consortium. 
and those characters aren't all Thai diaspora, right? Uh, I can give you it, it. If you read or you have read uh, Wings Once Cursed and Bound, you can probably make a pretty good educated guess as to who is going to be central in book two, which is already turned into my editor, by the way. Uh, so the the bare bones of it is there and it's got to go through a massive revision because I always that's my process, right? Like she reads it and and it always goes through a massive revision where I add like 20,000 words. So, um, you know, don't bother to steal that particular version of the manuscript. But <laughs> like where I would lean in is more about probably um, who my characters are. I think I would lean more into rather than what they choose or what they do. Um, I probably won't dodge into, you know, putting my heart and soul into lovable pets as much as I did in the true hero series. Cause I was just like, one of the things you could cut, see, you could like really read from the true hero series is I was holding on to the fact that a dog will never lie to you. I was real tired of humans at the time and a dog will never lie to you. Right. Like, <laughs> That was like the whole thing yeah. with True Heroes. Yeah, we got second chances and everything. But the dogs know. The dogs will never lie to you. And they always know who's a good person, right? Like, that's the whole series. But with Mythwoven, it's a lot more about exploring who you are, who you decide to be. And also who you're trying to figure out, what you're trying to figure out about yourself with the knowledge that's at hand. Not everybody has a mentor, right? Not everybody has lore. Not everybody has generational knowledge. Um, so I think I'm going to be exploring that more and more throughout the books, as well as like digging up mythology and like, hey, like, what do we get wrong over time? Like most of the folklore across regions was passed on by word of mouth. So really, how accurate is it? So and, and it's going to change from region to region. So I think I'm going to explore a lot about how myth can be a lot different from what was written. So I, I think I will open up that way. Great. Okay. Go ahead, LP. It's so interesting that you talk about how like myth is passed down to oral tradition. And then you say, how accurate is it going to be? Um, I'm interested because I think that like, there is a codified version of mythology that we have accepted in the West. Like, this is what Norse mythology is, and this is what Greek mythology is, and this is what Roman mythology is. But then there are, like, other mythologies that didn't didn't get the the, the written-down treatment that the these three that we know very well, like, you know, Celtic or Baltic or um, interior of Africa, which is 52 countries, and all of them have different traditions. And so I'm, I'm always interested in, like, and as a person from diaspora, because... This is going to sound like an accusation if I don't say this first. Uh, <laughs> I'm always concerned about what it's okay for me to talk about or like extrapolate on because I personally am a person from diaspora and like don't have like boots on the ground experience with like firsthand oral tradition of X, Y, and Z. Uh, mm -hmm. But I also recognize that like, you know, if someone was closer to it, i.e. Piper to Thai mythology, I might impart someone closer, i.e. Piper, with more grace because they're closer to it to, to maybe interpret. So I'm curious, like, what was, when you when you said accuracy, that, that triggered me, right? So I'm like, so 
what responsibility did you feel to accuracy and how much and why? And if you felt too much, I want you to to be okay. Oh, yes. you see this witch's streak of gray hair that has started oh. to show up on this one side <laughs> of my part. There was a little bit of, of stressing here when it came to touching on a myth that I loved so much because the way that it was told to me was orally, right? Like my mother told me these stories when I was a kid. And when you ask any of her relations, like, you know, any of my, my aunts, uncles, my grandparents back when they were alive, um, cause I was a kid who would be like, I would like a book on mythology, right? Like I've got a book on Roman and Greek mythology, Roman mythology. I've got a book on Greek mythology. I would like one on Thai mythology. Like every summer I would ask and like, just even trying to translate that. So people understood what I was asking for was a beast. Um, and so finding them was really hard. And finally we found one about Thai folk tales, but it was written by a South Asian with an English translator. Now South Asian version, now South Asian and Thai mythology due to history have a lot of um, really, really strong roots and background connected um, and origins, uh, you know, because of history, but we won't get into that as much right now, right? Like that's a discussion for another time. Um, but the versions that I heard were, were how they had become in, and evolved in Thailand and it was being told by a South Asian. And so that was like, Oh, do we, is there an English translation? Is there even a, like a, a, a younger reading level Thai version of these written by a Thai person? And none of my family could find me a book. And I was like, when I went to, I even came back and I did a summer semester in Thailand at a Thai university. And I was asking, do we have a historian at this university? And they're like, no, this, this university doesn't do that. I'm sure there, it was a university at the time, but my family was like, we don't have the time to go find you a professor. Um, you know, you've got what's available here. <laughs> and I was like, and, and I was thankful for that because it was still a really great university, just didn't happen to have a specialist in Thai mythology. So what I knew was that I had the mythology and the stories that my mother told me and I remembered, and I have a very good memory, right? And she would tell them over and over again. I had the reinforcement of walking around Wat Prakau, the ancient palace and the murals there, which is about the Ramakian, which is a different epic tale but at certain points there on the murals kinari are in the background right and then i also had the dances and then i had these other and literally as i was doing research now here in in the 2020s um i did find another reference um that i had mentioned in a previous episode uh but again <laughs> the main authors we're not Thai, but they were involved at least in the translation and interpretation this time. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm doing the research here and you're going to get a piece of fiction that is based on what I, I remember from those firsthand retellings. And that's where I'm going to go with that. And somebody's going to tell me that I got it wrong. And I'm going to say, this is, this is what I know. And this is how it's based on. And, and, and her identity was one where, yeah, I felt, I felt the heavy lifting on that. And I mean, I'm already aware that there are some people who said, you know, you didn't teach me enough about this myth. You didn't teach me about enough about Kinari. All I know about Kinari is that they got wings on their hips. That's all I know. And I was like, well, that's what you took from the book. Okay. I'm not going to apologize, but I'm also not going to be able to respond because the book's out there. I'm not going to be able to add more. 
Um, are we going to learn more about Pirapun? Yes, in the fact that there are bonus content short stories out there, uh, both in the Bookish Box Looks edition, as well as uh, will come out in Patreon, and there will be cameos of Pirapun and Bennett throughout the future books where she's continuing to learn about herself and Bennett and Pierpont are also learning about each other and continuing to do so as the other dark consortium characters are central to the story. Um, so I plan to get into that, but yeah, there was some heavy lifting and I'm also real nervous because the whole point behind Mythwoven is that there's going to be a lot of other folktale and mythology from other places. Mm-hmm. And I'm not as close to that. I'm not as much of an authority as in that as I am with, Thai mythology. So I feel that too. Okay. So give, cause we're now we're like 28 minutes into the podcast and we haven't even given the pitch. So give the pitch for the book. I mean, what I pitched it, do you want the pitch that I gave to my editor first? Yeah. Bring it sister. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's kind of a warehouse 13 meets the librarians only Thai mythology inspired and they don't, they're not crazy enough to keep all of the items into one in one spot. Cause that always seemed kind of odd to me. Like, why would you gather all of these dangerous things in one spot? Like why? Good point. <laughs> yeah. I literally had a TTRPG back just after college in the new adult days after college when we were kind of trying to be adults, but like we were lucky if we put our pants on. Um, which, you know, I have not advanced that far since then, but you know, we had a, a world of darkness campaign, which was, I think we, it was called the beast of Asharu. And the point behind it was all of the people in that world of darkness group, uh, and it was like a cross thing. It wasn't just, um, vampire, the masquerade or werewolf. We had like representatives from each of the things from world of darkness. And we were running around grabbing pieces or acquiring pieces of this cursed beast of Asharo to reassemble it, to quote unquote, bind it, to keep someone else from reassembling it. But we reassembled this beast. Why did we think that it was better to have this all together? Like this isn't Dragon Ball where you get a wish out of it, right? Like <laughs> we thought it was better to bring them all together, to keep it bound all together instead of keeping it all separate apart across the globe. So that was always something I was thinking about during that campaign. Like, why are we bringing them all together? It seems like a bad idea. Um, So I wanted to create this thing where we're going after these objects of myth and magic. And who are the characters that are going after these objects of myth and magic? What if they're forgotten beings as well? And what if they're real? And so we ended up with this urban fantasy situation where people are literally just going after objects of myth and magic and they themselves are beings, supernatural beings. So that's, that was the pitch that I gave to my editor. And she was like, okay. And the only thing she asked was, are you trying to go post-apocalyptic like Shadowrun style? Or are you trying to pull this more world of darkness present day with fantastical elements? And I'm like, world of darkness. And she's like, I'm sold. And my, my agent was like, I'm lost. And we're like, it's okay. We've got this. (laughs) I want to go back real quick. Nick wants to kill me because he has questions, but I just want to ask this one question. You, you said one, one, <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> I want to go back to about like when I said that this is feels like more you and like I feel like you like leveled up. So, and then, and then, you know, as we were talking tonight, what questions 
were you asking yourself when you were writing this book and then planning the series? Because maybe this is what I'm feeling from it. I feel like you're asking these really important questions that are like maybe hitting home in some way. So I think one of the aspects of this was that I wasn't asking myself, how do I keep these two together? It was more as I was writing, who are each of these people and what are they trying? What, what challenges do they face? Right. And, and, you know, as a third question, how will they end up together at the end? So it was a different approach, right? Instead of thinking about this, because I wasn't writing a romance. So this wasn't where the romance arc is the central plot line. For me, it was, hey, yes, this is still kind of, like this still is along the lines of a paranormal romance. This, this is still kind of a paranormal romance for some people. Like if that's, if that's what they want to take away from it. But it's also an urban fantasy in the fact that there's a problem to resolve. And who are each of these people and how are they overcoming both this problem to solve as well as overcoming their own baggage that they carry as they all come to meet each other. Um, So that was, I think, the difference in the way that I came to the story and what kinds of questions I asked myself, right? From scene to scene, it was more like, you know, who is my character? And in this scene, what are they struggling with? Is it belief? Is it plausibility? Is it survival? Is it just, I want to go home? Like, what is it? Okay, so my next question is, and Nick, you're next. Um, <laughs> You've been saying that over and over again. I think we should like, hold on. I don't hold know. On. I'm, I got you turn. It's that right. takeover spirit. It's that takeover spirit. Look, Piper, before this, it was Nick, get some questions for Piper. You got this. And I'm like, great. Well, we just prepare some too, because we know you, you like to ask very deep questions. And he hit you with the home run right off the bat. I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> Uh, she's like i'm congested i'm not gonna talk much (laughs) i'm talking all the time i know i'm that bitch okay i'm out of ask your question and then let nick go how about that all right all right this is my last question um you mentioned laurel k hamilton yes um as you know being one of the influences what is it about works like hers and some of the other ones that you've mentioned that you wanted to kind of pick from those influences and then really make it your own. One of the things that I loved about my introduction to Anita Blake was not just this character who was a little bit irreverent and she was quite, you know, for the time period, an unlikable heroine with like these snarky commentaries and comebacks and stuff. Um, And the fact that, you know, she, Anita Blake recognized a lot of mythology, right? Like one of my favorite scenes was when she recognized that they were going up against a cut school battle. And I was like, Oh, Hey, you know, that, that was fun. That was interesting to me. Um, But I think one of the things that I liked about the series in general was that it was here kind of a, an alternate present day reality with supernaturals and those supernaturals just trying to survive. Right, even vampires. She's a vampire hunter. She literally is an executioner, and she, she keeps meeting vampires. But damn it, she'd feel bad about killing. Right. I really liked how, even though she is who she is, and she hates, and she te- and she's 
unreserved about telling why she hates. She also has room in her mind and her heart for meeting people. And she recognizes them as people first that damn, she would really feel bad about killing this person right now. Right. And so I had fun with that idea of like, I'm just a supernatural trying to survive. I'm just trying to blend or I'm making a choice not to blend because is that not the diaspora experience? All right. So I loved that without being able to put words to it. Cause I just didn't have diaspora as a vocabulary word when I first read Anita Blake and I didn't have the discussion or the discourse, but I had that feeling of, Hey, this world is just a bunch of people who maybe don't have a source land or a home that they get to go back to. And they're just here now trying to make a place for themselves, trying to survive. And one of the things I loved about Patty Briggs is again, not just the main character, but all of the characters were like trying to stay under the radar, trying to stay under the radar, but also make lives for themselves. And also low key ending up having to deal with what, everybody does to everybody else and there's human elements to it and there's supernatural elements to it, but it still comes down to the human nature of like, dang things people do to each other. Right. And so I loved that about, and I honestly liked Mercedes Thompson and the characters better than I liked Anita Blake and the characters, because I had like Richard broke my heart and, and he can burn. Yeah. Richard's an asshole. Right. Um, Like I have problems with that. And then, who Anita became over time, having nothing to do with her power ramp up. But the choices she made were ones that I was like, okay, as Anita evolves as a person, I I completely respect her, but I have less in common with the choices that she makes anymore. Um, and that's totally okay. I really, really loved the next oh. series that came out with the Meredith Gentry because I found that I, I was able to latch on to Meredith and the choices that Meredith made better at that time when I was reading it you know, in conjunction to who I was. Um, whereas with Mercy and the Mercy Thompson series or Kate Daniels, I never really um, latched on to Kate Daniels real well, but I really, really latched on to Andrea from the Kate Daniels series by Alona Andrews. Again, that urban fantasy. But if you notice, um, Kate Daniels' urban fantasy is very post-poc, right? Whereas the Mercedes Thompson series by Patricia Briggs is really alt history now, or like alt reality now, um, not post-apocalyptic. And then you have um, the Anita Blake series, which I mean, do we consider that post-apoc? No. I don't think so. It's still, uh-uh. it's right here right now, but it's definitely a major change in population because of the vampire situation and zombie raising. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about all those series, and I didn't realize something when you said it about Laurel, because I've read her since I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, and Laurel's half Mexican, mm-hmm. and most people don't realize that, and it's only flavored a little bit in the book, and then it just made me think, oh, this is one of the reasons why I probably like it, because Laurel herself had no uh, relationship with her Mexican side. So I feel like, you know, a lot of your influences of the things you're gravitating towards and then the questions you're asking now are really interrelated. So it's like taking 
your influences and also thinking of your life and then remixing it into you, which I think that's fascinating. Now, to be fair, when it comes to my Thai heritage, I am first generation, arguably, right? Both my parents came from Thailand, grew up in Thailand, came here as adults. And I had the opportunity to go back summers to Thailand. So, um, But even then, my experience isn't as involved as some of my other friends um, who you know, spent a lot more time in Thailand and are much more fluent in the Thai language or had the opportunity to study more intensely Thai traditional dance or other things, right? So that, that spectrum was there. So I did end up leveraging memories of a friend of mine in college who I only got to hang out with her before, like we had parted ways because of the age difference and her graduating out. Um, But Carrie was half Thai, half Latina, and she only knew her Latina family. What she told me was she knew her father was Thai, but he died when she was a kid and his family came from Thailand and took her dad after he passed and they never heard from the family again. So she knew almost nothing about her Thai heritage. So when we became friends, I took her home a bunch. She talked to my mom. She had a lot of heartfelt conversations with my mom. My dad was a little bit more traditionally like, let me feed you as his way of caring rather than talking Uh or heart to hearts. Uh, That's just the way my dad is. Um, But like, she just kind of soaked that up because she had a loving family, but she was missing some of that background. And so I wanted to try to pull that into some of my characters as well with the Mythwoven series too, because I remember how she felt about that. And I remembered how lucky I was that for my identity, I had a lot of generational knowledge. Go ahead, Nick. A lot of my questions, there an answer have been given to most of them, but I do want to talk about your book, right? We've got a lot of the, the background on it, the writing of it, some inspiration, but let's talk about the book. Okay. Let's. I want your introduction to our two main characters because I think they're very interesting characters and they're very fun. Um, but I want to hear your introduction to these two characters. All right. So Pirapan is, you know, a 30, 30 something adult Asian American, Thai American, uh, who, you know, at the beginning of our story is, you know, just being a person. And she's in a dance rehearsal for a, a fundraiser, a charity fundraiser that's coming up. Um, and she's doing this as a favor to her mom. And the main, the main person in charge, the main coordinator is a childhood friend she just cannot stand. Right. So she's very real because like, this is the feeling like, oh, the family ties. It's, you could see a little bit in, in some of the characters in Joy Luck Club, if you ever watched that movie. But, you know, that kind of uh, relationship is real where like your families are friends and therefore you were childhood friends. But also like there's some admiration between the two of you going on that you're struggling with. You know, so Pirapun's dealing with all of this, like, I'm here on stage because I told my mom I would be, but I would avoid this if I could, right? Kind of just very real, very contemporary, very easygoing, not easy. This is hard stuff to be dealing with, but it's still very mundane. And then said person gives her a pair of glorious shoes and very uncharacteristically doesn't keep them for herself. And Pirapun puts them on because she can't resist. And they're the red shoes from mythology. 
And so the rest of the time is Parapon just trying to figure her way out to find, trying to figure out how to survive this situation where she's now stuck in a cursed pair of shoes, trying to be practical and just trying to survive one step at a time, literally one step at a time when they're trying to kill her every time she tries to go down the stairs. Right. Or every time she falls asleep, they'd make her dance, trying to dance her to exhaustion. So she's just trying to figure out how to survive this situation. And Bennett is a vampire who's centuries old, you know, and he, he fell in love before it broke him and he doesn't want to care about humans anymore. He just wants to do his job and just generally benevolent, be benevolent to the human race in general. Cause they outnumber all the other supernaturals. <laughs> so he's like, I don't want to be the villain here. Generally want to be benevolent, but I don't want to care about anybody on an individual level. And he comes into play and literally he's just thinking, oh, shoes are on somebody. I'll just have to wait till that person dies. And then in the panic, after they die, I'll go grab the shoes. Right? Like, no intention to save anybody. No intention to intercede and try to save somebody once the shoes are on a person. Because as far as he's concerned, that's it. That's a death sentence. So there's a certain amount of distance that he has from empathizing with an individual victim. So that's who they are at the start. I I love the dynamic that you have set up there because they there's so much growth from that. One of the things that I noticed in this particular book is you flipped a trope on its head. And I want you to kind of dive did into I? that a little bit. How do you, you think did, I did that? I mean, I'm going to point this out. Uh, so you took the damsel in distress trope and totally spun it around. Where in the beginning... I feel like Bennett's trying to do the whole, oh, I got to save you. I got to save you. But it just doesn't work out that way because she won't allow it. And she's strong in herself, who she is. She's always like, no, I have a choice in this. You don't get to tell me what to do. I'm doing it because I want to. Kind of talk to me about flipping that trope and, and your thought process behind that. I wouldn't say that I tried to flip it because that would be very extreme. Right. Like I wasn't trying to flip it completely over, but I did want to go with other options. So for Pierapun, she's trapped in the shoes and she's got a situation here where suddenly in this theater with her stuck in shoes that are a bad, that, that are a problem and she recognizes they're a problem. She also has no informational sources for how to deal with this problem, except for the supernatural who's actually willing to talk to her and isn't really intending to kill her right now as far as, as far as she can understand. And another supernatural comes into the building and she can tell, yeah, mm, I don't get good vibes off of this guy. Um, and the other, super, and, and, you know, shady in the side wings, Bennett is like, yeah, no, he's, he's just here for the shoes. He, he, he will probably kill you. I wasn't intending to kill you, but either way, you know, you're going to die with these shoes on unless we get them off. <laughs> and so, so she made the best of really bad options. And she's like, okay, take the shoes. And he's like, mm, they're not coming off. Well. I choose you. What are the, what's the next step here? Right. And he leaves the building with her, which is great. You know, let's, let's take step out of the being between two things. And we have a, a supernatural vampire fight. Yay. So it is a choice of come with me if you want to live. And she chooses to live. And he, he takes her out of that situation. But in the next situation, it's again, her choice. He ends up having a vampire fight and he's managed to, 
stab off the attacker. So she has a chance to get away, but also leaving him in an alley. And he's an, obviously a supernatural and he's also the only supernatural she's ever met, you know, and then, okay, I know I'm supposed to go somewhere for safety. I guess I can take him with me as long as there's a scooter. Like there are options again. So she chooses options to save him. Um, and then again, there's also that fairness of he saved me. He got me out of a bad situation and now he's dying and I think I can help here without dying myself. So I'm going to help. And so she does, again, return the favor. And it goes back and forth through the book a little bit of who's helping who or who's offering information to who. Um, when we have the climax, I did twist it a little bit. And my intent there was that she's still problem solving for herself. She's not relying on someone to come save her. Any of her new friends might not be able to find her in time. So she's doing the best she can to buy herself time and also find a way out herself. And ultimately what I wanted for her was that she'd be able to find her way out. And I do this in the true hero series too. Um, several of the heroines solve the immediate danger problem. And then when the hero or the heroine also shows up, they get them the rest of the way out. So the idea here of not waiting for fate to come rescue you, fate only takes you so far, but you can be poised to be ready for the chance to survive or the chance to be happy or the chance to get what you want. And that that's what I wanted for my characters is like, they're going to keep trying and keep trying to be in a position where if help comes, they can take that helping hand. No, I love it. it it's one of the things that stuck out to me was, I need to choose my words carefully. Some other writers would have chosen the damsel in distress and made Bennett the hero, the rescuer the entire time. We've seen that plenty, but I, I really like your choice of spare pan and like how you presented that. Like, like you said, another option um, on that one. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know why everything you're saying, I'm like, man, she's a survivor. Like, she knows how to get through it. Is there anything from your experiences or inspirations for that type of character? I mean, I'm just a diaspora trying to survive, right? Like, no, um, <laughs> there's a whole lot of different identities, but all right. So this is a bad B movie, but still a lot of fun was Predators or was it Predator? Um, and there was a quote from one of the main characters in there. Um, that was a very military style quote. That was something along the lines of the moment I was born, I fell into, I, I dropped into enemy territory and I just started to crawl my way towards death. Right. <laughs> and every, like, and it was kind of badass, Right. I was thinking, Oh, like I love that line out of this really B movie that I somehow really enjoy watching and playing in the background for odd reasons, because there's, alien dogs in there that play fetch with grenades um so i was just like okay i kind of like that concept of we're all born and from the minute we breathe we're trying we're just trying to survive for the time that we have here so i just think every person the human experience is about trying to survive now the other thing from my experiences is especially with mixed martial arts i had um a trainer who is like, okay, when, especially because I hate grappling 
I hate grappling and I hate Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I took both. And part of the reason why was because at the mixed martial arts studio that I was at, we tried to put practical application to the mixed martial arts we were learning. I was studying Judofan Jeet Kune Do, I was studying Muay Thai, I was studying um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I was also studying Kali, which is weapons. And we would apply it to, hey, how can you apply this to self-defense? And one of the things they told me is like, you, you're, you're a great stand-up striker. You're great. You've got heavy hands. You've got really quick feet. They're like, your, your kicks are devastating. But you are the stature you are. You are the identity you are. And the first thing an attacker is going to try to do is grapple with you and take you down to the ground for things. So we need to teach you grappling. And one of the things that they taught me was to take my time and think while I was down there in practice so that my body would remember what my choices were when I was too panicked in a situation to deal. So we would talk and we'd go through very slowly what the options were for my body when I was pinned down in certain ways so that I could look for those openings and look for those moments and breathe with those moments to get my way, to look for openings to get away, to get myself out of those situations. And I think that they've covered that in other movies and stuff like that. So you may find those kinds of concepts in in other movies with mixed martial arts and stuff, but there's always an option, particularly when it's a, um, a movie that includes like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or grappling is like, you're constantly like tiny shifting. If you've ever watched a fight that's mostly grappling, it seems kind of boring because they're just kind of like down there on the ground. But what you don't realize is there's micro movements going on as each of them is trying to look for a moment. Look for a moment to do a thing and get the leverage and get out of the hold or get this or do that, right? So I think that that part of the experience also is something that I apply to most problem solving when it comes to situations. It's just constantly trying to find the best options you have ahead of you before the variables change. That's yeah. One comment, Marshall, then I'll pass it to you here. I I find that all interesting because military background, that's how we're trained, right? Like figure it out before it even happens. Muscle memory training like that way. So I I find what you're saying is very interesting. And I love that concept. Um, I'm going to toss it to Marshall though, for I think our last question here. Second to last question because we always have our famous outro question here. <laughs> but Marshall? yeah, and the last question, Piper, shouldn't be a surprise. But this is not the last last question. The second to last. But um, you mentioned earlier. Um, I'm excited to see where the series goes. Um, you mentioned that future books may not will not have um, you know Punch and Bennett as the main characters, maybe. But if I'm curious since our listeners may or may not have read the book yet, and we've done a pretty good job of not spoiling too much. Um, what can people expect if they pick this up um, for the rest of the series? They can expect more objects of myth and magic from around the world. I'll even give a hint that I took a trip to Egypt in 2021. And so a lot of what I learned there will be featured in the objects that are featured in book two. So that's a nice hint for you. Um, and I also have a love for folklore and mythology from around the world. Um, so you're going to uh, encounter more objects of myth and magic from around the world that become, you know, the catalyst for the events in each of the books. Uh, and if you have read Wings Once Kirsten Bound, you could probably make an educated guess as to who is involved in the central relationship as the main characters of book two. Are we doing the last question? Are you doing the last question? Yeah. 
Are you doing another? I just LP haven't gotten a chance to get a word in edgewise. You're going to take the last question. Chad, Brian, I don't have to go. I asked asked a hard question. It took me a long time to formulate it. I appreciate it. Your question. Brent's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Just we just keep keep. I mean, Brent knows what the last question is. I mean, if he he wanted to get his voice in, he could do it. But Will, you're up. Go ahead, buddy. You got this. Right. Oh, me? Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, shut up, guys. Um, Piper. <laughs> well, tell us what just huh? keeps you writing? What keeps you writing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. I keep finding stories everywhere I go, everywhere I turn. I'm like, I see a story. I smell a story. I taste the story. I have a story. So I keep writing them. And honest to goodness, ideas are never the problem. And in fact, one of the processes that I established early on with my agent is that I would send her emails with my story ideas so that she could keep a file because then it'd be out of my head and I wouldn't be distracted like a squirrel by the shiny thing when I was on contract to write a book. And at any given time, I'm generally writing like three different series. So she keeps the ideas that I'm not currently working on. And then when I say I'm ready for a new series, what do we think? She will either grab what is most marketable of my fun ideas. Like she'll give me a list of my five ideas that I have given to her safekeeping out of the 20 that she's got. And she goes, okay, of these five, which are the ones that you are most excited about? And then we'll talk about that. And she will also give, we'll try to get a Venn diagram of the ideas that I have that are, I'm the most excited about. And also she thinks are the most marketable at the moment, right? Because every story is going to be a marketable eventually, just timing, right? So that's what we do for a pitch. And when we decide what I'm going to write next, but sometimes I just preempt her because I saw a story and I go and I write it instead. And I'm like, just keep those on hold forever. <laughs> I'll get there sometime. So that's why I just keep writing. Cause I just keep getting ideas. Awesome. Well, I love that. Look, I, I can't thank you enough for appearing on the show. We had a great series um, a few episodes back and we love having you here and we're going to do it again, obviously. And we're very excited about the launch of your book and thanks for coming and talking to us about it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say in regards to that? I mean, I don't know. I was, I love talking to all of you and I'm so glad that you've been so generous to give so much time to this series and this book in particular for discussions in the episodes that we've had recently. So thank you for having me. And we'll do it again for yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks for coming along. <laughs> and this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.